the 22nd of August 2016, students began an occupation at the Sydney College of the Arts against savage course closures and job cuts. No one thought it would last for more than a day or three, but in reality it ran for 65 days, making it the longest student occupation of an administration building in Australian history. It gained support from unions, other students, and from the artistic community, and it won a number of its key demands. In 2022, at a time when universities are slashing courses and jobs again, this time in the name of surviving the pandemic, despite most unis recording healthy profits, it's important to learn the lessons of the 2016 struggle. That's why we're talking today to three activists who were deeply involved. And this is the latest in the new segment of The Sound of Solidarity that's called I Was There. We're interviewing activists who took part in key moments in the struggle, finding out what really happened and sharing the lessons. Now, strictly speaking, today's episode should be We Were There, as I have three guests. Tandy Patoon, Kelton Muir and Adam Adelpore are solidarity members who were all student activists at the University of Sydney at the time. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. So comrades, welcome. All right, Tandy, I think we'll start with you because you were actually a first year student at the SCA in 2016. So what was it like to go into occupation that day? It was very exciting. I mean, we'd sort of planned the occupation, hoping that it would pass in the meeting where we were, that we were going to have a lunchtime or we were going to vote on it. But so we all came in early in the morning with our sleeping bags and various props to kind of be able to stay the night. And I think there was, yeah, a real kind of air of excitement throughout the whole day. And then when it passed, it was, um, yeah, it was one of the coolest things that I've, I've ever been a part of. Had you ever been into that building before? Yes, I had. I had my interview to get into SCA in that building. And the building you occupied, what was its function at it the college? It was the administration building, so at the front, the front of SCA, where um, yeah, some of the administrative staff worked, and also where the dean's office was. So, Adam and Kelton, had you actually ever taken part in a student occupation before that? So, in twenty twelve, there was three hundred and forty job cuts on the main campus at Sydney Uni. And in the course of that, we'd had big protests and um, had a brief occupation of another administration building there. So we'd sort of been through the experience that, you know, when you clearly have mass opposition to cuts, management's ignoring you, there needs to be something that goes further than, than just appealing to their conscience. So, yeah, we had been involved in brief occupations, but nothing comparable to Sydney College of the Arts. And when they actually occupied the building, I was very involved in organising and planning it, but I was actually at work. So I was just on my phone, like, <laughs> messaging people, like, did it work? What's happening? What's happening? And was extremely stressed about whether it would come off or there would be some 
you know, sort of conflict, trying to get hold of the building. But then I can't remember which comrade sent it, just sent me a photo of them all with their faces pressed against the glass from the inside of the building. And I was like, all right, that's good. I, I hadn't been involved in an occupation before. I was pretty new to, to socialist activism, to any sort of social movement campaigning. But I had pretty recently become infatuated with May 68 and the idea of occupying the Sorbonne or occupying um, the, the theatres and so forth and that sort of level of, of radical democracy. I mean, that wasn't what we were channeling necessarily when we marched in there, but um, well, I mean, we were channeling, it wasn't the most direct link that we were making at that time, but that was sort of my background in, in occupying and political activism was reading things at that point. And so, yeah, the going in was, was both crazy bit of euphoria and excitement but also absolute chaos um we sort of didn't quite know what to do once we got in there we were making a lot of noise and then it was like <clears throat> a handful of people knew where all the barricade equipment was and just came out of nowhere and all of a sudden we had acro props and logs the size of a person blocking doors and things like that so it it all happened rather fast but but my main memory actually was sort of being um somewhat of an organizer of the campaign at the time was as soon as we got in and all the chaos and excitement was, you know, in, in full flight was, okay, crap, what do we do now? What are the next steps? What are the next steps? And that's sort of, I guess, how the next, after the, the initial adrenaline rush played out. Well, the campaign was long and serious and it had been running for some while before the occupation. What were the issues at stake? I think the main issue was to, to save the school. Um, so Sydney College of the Arts was going to be, had a, had a range of sort of potential options in the previous year, but then the management of, of University of Sydney came down very hard with the plan that in six months, the school would move to a different university, would not be part of the University of Sydney, would not exist in and of itself, would merge into a different course and a different um, school that was incredibly different to Sydney College of the Arts. Sydney College of the Arts, was particularly unique by its mode of learning, of um, embodied education, of creative development, sort of learning with your hands rather than, and, and, and creating, uh, understanding ideas by learning with your hands rather than just understanding techniques of art. And so this sort of identity was at risk. And yeah, they were gonna be merged into COFA at UNSW, a totally different school. But beyond that, I think bigger sort of questions came to the fore as well of, what should our education look like? How should we deal with neoliberal society that keeps cutting away at things? And so those macro issues came into play alongside the very real struggle that was our art school is going to be closed. We're not going to be able to finish studying. We're not going to be able to do our PhDs. Our teachers are going to lose their jobs um, and everything that came along with that specific threat. I think as well, yeah, as that it also... The closure of SCA was coming at a time where art schools all over Australia were kind of under threat and it was it wasn't just SCA specific but um, actually Australia doesn't have a whole lot of art schools particularly not good art schools and yeah SCA was was quite specific but also like in its uh, educational approach I suppose but also in terms of the studios that it offered it was one of the only places in the country that you could do glass work. Um, same with like the, the sculpture and ceramic studios were kind of quite unique. And yeah, 
SCA was a specific problem, but it also kind of put, it, it was a threatening time for like arts education all over the country. And certainly it was felt by people at other art schools as well. Now, the University of Sydney is very big and very, very rich. It turns over billions of dollars a year. I can't remember if it's two billion or three billion, but it's it's a very big business that makes a lot of money and gets a lot of donations from alumni. Why did it fight so hard to effectively shut down what was a very, very small part of its operations? What, what made it so important for them to dump this uh, College of the Arts and the courses that went along with it? In their strategic plan of the period, so the 2016 to 2020, um, they were having a major managerial overhaul of how the university would function. So there was a restructure that involved moving 16 or 17 faculties down to five or six and really putting the control and power of the university into a very small select few hands. Um, and this has kind of been completed now at the University of Sydney and a lot of other universities as well. So there was a lot of centralised rationalisations basically that went along with the continual, continual growth and functioning of their business model. And you're totally right, David, it's about three and a half billion that goes through University of Sydney each year. But part of that rationalization was, um, and in quite a crude form, um, was just that they wanted to rationalize their campuses. They had 65, 70 campuses, and they didn't want to have that many campuses and different laws over different places. And it just, it was too complicated for them in terms of how they organized this massive institution. They needed to streamline. There was a handful of suits in a building who were running and making decisions, and they wanted that to be a smaller and smaller group so they could articulate their direction better and better. So their strategic plan didn't fit with having an art school where SCA was, um, and they didn't care. It didn't bring in any money or any money of quantible <laughs> amounts to them, um, so it was easier to get rid of it. Yeah, I think the... The, you know, the whole battle over SCA really brought into light and that criteria Kelton just went over brought to light the priorities of management. Like on the one hand, you've got staff and students who want quality education, uh, want the betterment of society, but then the university is actually run by a millionaire vice chancellor, um, a Senate that's stacked with Liberal Party appointees and their criteria for the university is nothing to do with quality education and the betterment of society. It's all about expansion, maximising revenue, maximising the surplus, competing against other universities. So what you had at SCA was, you know, a clash between what people saw as valuable in SCA in terms of the staff and students and what management saw, which was just a part of the university that wasn't um, profitable enough for them to um, consider that it was worth anything. So, yeah, it, it highlighted the warped priorities of the university management and the university system as a whole. Like I said before, in 2012, they tried to put th through these 340 job cuts, and the criteria for whether your job was cut was how many publications you would made not whether it was a book whether it was a brilliant contribution it was just how many so the the degree factory was alive and well in the the ranks of senior management but it was completely with at odds with what um staff and students saw as valuable about sca 
So as socialists, how do we think universities should be run? Well, they should be run for need and they should be run by the people who are involved in them. What does society need should be decided by the society, not by a handful of unelected um, bureaucrats who are fighting over competitive advantage over other universities and a certain surplus margin that they can reinvest in new infrastructure to attract new international students. The university should have more than a modicum. It should be entirely run by students and staff in terms of the decision-making involved in what do we teach, um, how do we teach it, um, and what comes along with that education. Um, and I guess one of the very interesting things about the struggle at Sydney College of the Arts was that a bit of that university began to exist. Some of the staff who I talked to after when I was interviewing for my honours thesis about the campaign talked about the, the most vibrant art school they'd ever seen was the time during the occupation. It was running film screenings and educational nights. It was making decisions about how to actually make the school they wanted to make. It was you know, cursory or beginning discussions about how to make a new art school beyond the, the University of Sydney one and what should that look like. and, and mocking up sort of little manifestos about what that would be. And it was really the, the human relationships and the challenge and the, the way that we learned about fighting the university that was a, a different sort of education. It was a very embodied education, which fit with the, the education of Sydney College of the Arts of, of learning by making. Um, and I think that's what we see as socialists both about the, the process of creating that university is one that happens in the activity of fighting it. Um, and the democracy comes out there and it did in the campaign, but also, you know, we make the decisions about what we need and what we want as, as, a, as, a, as a university um, and not as a management. Let's go back to the occupation. All right, it was a real adrenaline rush and a bit of a surprise when you got inside. And I think, as you've already said, then suddenly the question is posed, what next? No one goes into struggle expecting the struggle to be elongated. No workers go on strike expecting to be on the picket line for weeks on end. And no one goes into a student occupation expecting to spend 65 days there. So what was life like inside the occupation? How did you make sure that you survived physically, mentally, politically? And what did you do to spread support? And his mum brought cake. First day, everyone remembered that. I don't remember that. Yeah. I'm not sure that's true, but I did. Someone brought cake. Okay, yeah. someone brought cake. Let's <laughs> let's move on. Let's let's move on to even bigger issues than, than cake. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. How do you maintain? How do you maintain an occupation? But what is also the point of maintaining an occupation? When, uh, what like what is the function of of that kind of a um a tool, I suppose, in struggle. And I think what we learned <laughs> was that it's very hard to maintain an occupation for 65 days. It's hard to maintain any campaign long-term actually, and to keep people involved and to keep people struggling and to maintain investment in something that is quite challenging and to get new people involved in it. And I think one of the things we found with the occupation was that trying to maintain it actually meant that we weren't going out um, and talking to as many kind of new students on campus and getting them involved outside of the occupation as we probably could have been. We weren't as good as at going into classes and 
you know, having those conversations with classes and getting them in to the occupation, you know, that's probably something that could have been done a bit better. But the, yeah, the difficulty of kind of finding people that were going to stay in the occupation and man it overnight became more and more difficult as time went along. Um, and certainly the intensity of that kind of a space and that kind of activism meant that people got really, really worn down and burnt out. And so I think that's definitely a useful lesson that I've learned from their CA campaign is going, all right, well, we have a limited amount of resources. How do you best use them? How do you best maintain yourself and your energy? How do you, what's actually going to keep the campaign rolling forward and not getting stuck on, um, on certain ideas just because they're sort of in motion? So just on a practical note, did the university sort of besiege the admin building with security? Were you able to get food and supplies and new people in and out of the building easily? Relatively easily. I think towards the beginning, there was a little bit of the security were made more of an effort to stop us from coming in and out. And we sort of had to climb through windows and things. But towards the end, we developed quite a good relationship with those security guards. There were there was always security out the front, um, but you know we had nice chats with them and they would let us in and out relatively um, easily. So what did you do to spread support? I know you're a little bit self-critical there, Tandy, about not doing enough to spread to students, but you, the occupation did win broader support. There was support from students and there was support from union members. So. What steps did you take? Um, that was something I was very involved in. I actually didn't go into the occupation when it started, partly because I saw the success of the occupation would be the solidarity and awareness that's inspired um, on and off SCA, just as much as it, the fact of it being there was the big embarrassment for management and was a testament to the extent of the opposition. So. The first day they went in, when I got that message that they'd successfully occupied it, um, I was involved in just contacting unions, activists, anyone else who might be interested to turn up outside the occupation, show solidarity, um, spread the word that it was happening immediately and sort of put it on, on the map as, um, you know, this courageous action that had happened in the face of um, the management that so many people knew, knew had incredibly warped priorities in terms of the type of institution um, Sydney University sh should be. So, yeah, the, the first action we took was to have protests outside um, to support it and also to ensure that it wasn't just physically dispersed um, by police without support outside. They would have been in a far weaker position to even survive a night or two. But I think um, Solidarity was particularly involved in uh, uh, reaching out to our connections in the union movement and the community to make sure there was, you know, very active Solidarity. So we were involved in bringing up a busload of wharfies to um, enter the occupation at one point um, who knew us from uh, a big dispute over mass sackings that we'd been involved in supporting. People were sent out to speak at union meetings at Unions New South Wales. They spoke at um, meetings of wharfies. They spoke to the media. The media also entered the occupation. And we also 
splits the main campus, um, set up a, you know, Sydney College of the Arts consulate on Eastern Ave and went off to classes telling people on the main campus what was happening and why um, they should stand in support of the SCA occupation. But I think the critical thing was to make sure there was support within SCA itself because it's one of the things about the occupation. It forced the issue onto an, onto the agenda um, in a way that couldn't be ignored, but it didn't automatically mean people supported it. It was a new thing. There were all sorts of rumours, misinformation spread by management stooges about how there were no SCA students in there. They were destroying the property of admin staff. People didn't even know it had demands. So I think one of the strongest things and the reason it survived as long as it did was when the occupation itself made a decision to turn outwards and to start making videos um, where everyone in the occupation would make a video at the end of the day about what they'd been doing and how the campaign was going to uh, make a bulletin that was handed out in the classes at Sydney College of the Arts and as people entered the building, going over the demands, responding to the latest um, lies by management, responding to what they said in the media. And you could see the tide turn in favour of the occupation in the classes from that work. And there was actually a day where the occupation decided to open up a few days in and to invite more people inside and to go out and have a meeting and talk to students. So I think that was the reason it was able to continue as long as it did. I think that's that's totally right. Like that outward facing approach had to be a very conscious decision that we made. It was very easy, as, as Tundi was saying, to be inside the occupation and think, all right, this is the fight. How do we make sure that this keeps happening? Can we find one or two more people? Do we just call them and try to get them in sort of thing? Oh, there's someone from UNSW who wants to come and, and be part of it. <clears throat> that's all great, but the political questions over was this occupation going to be raided by the police was not really a question of just like the police it was a question of actually how much political support did we have and so uni management really batted on us like they they, they disconnected the wi-fi um at sca and said that we had done that and we were tampering with the, the wi-fi um and so yeah we, we had to really actively take that on there was a lot of, of very serious lies and that 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 meeting it was called Meet the Occupiers, where we went out and, and had that discussion and 50 people came along and then the Warfies bus came sort of at the end of that and they were able to provide a picket to actually get into the occupation and uh, 50, 60 people entered the occupation and, and sort of witnessed what was going on, felt this collective sense that this is our occupation, not an occupation happening over there. Um, but that, that question was constant of maintaining the middle at SCA and trying to maintain and build a periphery at the main campus. Like that was what was going to win us this campaign as if the whole university was an open revolt and the university couldn't be an open revolt if SCA wasn't entirely an open revolt. And so we fought very, very hard for that. That was the, the political meat and bones of the you know, post euphoria. What do we do is how do we get in touch with those people? And I've been in other occupations since where we didn't have that sort of periphery, even though it was at the main campus and there could have been thousands and thousands of students. And by the end of the day, we were gone. We were out. There needed to be, you know, enough people willing to put themselves on the line um, in front of the police um, or cause a disruption. Um, there had to be enough support in some sort of broader way. There's always a temptation with high points of struggle to put on rose-coloured spectacles and think about it as a moment of magical unity. 
But in practice, there were very fierce debates amongst students, SCA students, about how to fight, where to fight, whether to fight. Can you take us through some of those arguments and how they were resolved? I think perhaps the first thing to say about it was that most people when they come into a campaign have an idea of change that sort of fits with the general ideas of change in society. So you know, we elect politicians, um, we try to convince people of certain things in our day-to-day life who are more influential than us and decision makers. It's generally the way that working class people have to affect change. And so I think that sort of came out in the campaign as well and particularly sort of as artists, artists have been at SCA have been taught that um, what you do makes a difference, and that's totally true. That their art is important and does make a difference. But in terms of also the idea of shaping society, that the art that you make can have a positive impact on the world. And so there was very much an idea um, amongst a lot of SCA students that the best way to fight was to make a painting that would convince the management um, that would. You know, would be this was the value of the school we can convince them of the value of the school our voice needs to be heard so they can listen and change their minds essentially and there was a lot of incredible art that was made because of that and because of the, the general temperament um and it's not to say that art shouldn't have been made and that was i think one of the really vibrant parts of the campaign was that it was so beautiful and colorful and involved so much creativity in such a quite profound way for a lot of people but there was a debate over whether could art change the decision makers or did we have to disrupt? Um, was there something more than just a bad idea in their head that had to be knocked out of them? Was it a political fight that actually the disruption involved in making it untenable for them politically to go forward? And that, that was a tension that raised its head in various ways at various times. But that idea that we could lobby decision makers played under the surface in, in various formations, whether it was keeping donors on side, whether it was keeping middle management rather than just upper management on side, we can work with that person, they can help us, rather than we're going to actually just make a statement that's so loud it cannot be ignored. Um, and one of the beauties of the campaign was we made a statement that was so loud it couldn't be ignored and it had a lot of success therefore, but we didn't go far enough as well and that was, I think, due to that debate in a certain way that there weren't enough people convinced of, of banging the, the drum of war so loud. Yeah, I think that's right. I think as like my experience of it, I hadn't done any activism before. I hadn't been involved in any kind of politics before. All of it was very, very new. And my personal transformation in that process was, yeah, I guess going from thinking, all right, who do we, who do we get to change this? You know, who do we have to talk to? for them to understand that this thing needs to change to realizing actually like in this kind of a neoliberal education system, like we are like our interests are opposed to management. And there is like, there's a battle going on between students and staff and the business model. And you can't look to the people working within the business model to, to change it for you. And, that realization that not only can we change things ourselves, but actually we're the only people that are going to change it because no one else's interests are aligned with that um, was really kind of profound for me. But also I think I fell into those ideas quite quickly and it made, when they were explained to me, it made a lot of sense to me. 
And I was like, well, absolutely, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to do the most radical things. And we're going to like, I was so caught up in the excitement of it all and really, really wanted to change things and could not relate to the people in my classes that didn't want to. And I think that's the thing to understand as well is that there are always going to be people at different stages of um, wanting to fight and it'll take people different experiences to be convinced of those ideas and that you have to work on those people. You can't just take the top layer of excited people with you and leave everyone else behind. And that's kind of the work um, as well and, and figuring out how do you convince people of those things when it takes a bit longer. Um, that was certainly, yeah, something that I struggled with. And I think to given the starting point at Sydney College of the Arts, the amount of debates that were won to get to that kind of occupation was actually incredible. Like I went to Sydney College of the Arts and I was interested in being involved in the left protest movements, opposing the government on various issues. But I had to go to main campus to do that because no one was actively interested at Sydney College of the Arts. So to have that that campus then end up doing the longest occupation in Sydney Uni's history was evidence for how many debates were won. Like from the very first inklings that the art school was going to be closed, there are immediately debates about whether you could even have democratic meetings. We successfully won that debate by being confident in the fact that we would need mass opposition to fight management. Um, and we had good answers to the questions that came up. Um, throughout the, the campaign, like when people were discussing the occupation, like people didn't know anything about occupations or why it would work or what effect it would have. We had to explain, you know, there were occupations in 2012 against 340 job cuts. We stopped half the academic job cuts. We won something. This is proven to work. And we had convincing answers to the to the questions, particularly for the core activists at Sydney College of the Arts. So yeah, that was critically important to even having a democratic campaign in the first place, because there were organised forces at SCA that didn't want that. The Sydney College of the Arts Student Society um, wanted to be the self-appointed representatives of the whole student body and to drip feed us management's information and that's it. Um, so yes there was a lot of debate and that was the only reason there could be the glorious moments i think that point about democracy is so important as well particularly for um, campuses or universities that don't have a vibrant activist culture at them right now which unfortunately is a, is a fair few but the, the the sort of general politic um that's you know whether it's coming with the ideas of lobbying management in some way trying to find a decision maker and convince them of something the next one is, I'll run the campaign. I have some skills in doing this, and you and other people can help out with it. But I mean, that just is replicated. Whether it's the classroom and the teacher, whether it's the business and the boss, or the workers and the boss at a, at a company, um, whether it's representative democracy, all of these sort of ways where someone else makes decisions for you, and that just doesn't work in a campaign to actually get mass involvement. And so that 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 first level, we actually had to have a, a vote on. 
did everyone want to vote on things? <laughs> and at like that sort of basic level, rather than someone telling us, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do. We never would have been able to get people to come inside the occupation if they weren't the ones owning it and putting their hand up and voting for it themselves. We never would have gotten all these students to go on strike if, if they didn't feel involved in the process. And, and also, we wouldn't have gotten a whole bunch of other really interesting and wonderful ideas and energy if people weren't you know, taking putting their own foot on the pedal forward and holding the steering wheel themselves. And that, that really came from actually having debates in democracy, even if sometimes you didn't win all the debates. So you had to discuss for hours and hours and hours on end. That was crucial to allowing this to flourish. So when there's not an activist culture at, at campuses or at universities, I think that's the fundamental first point is to have open organizing meetings, open discussion, and ways that can get a layer of people who are not involved in anything previously to feel like they're taking ownership over something. That raises a really interesting question about the tension between mass open participatory campaigns and the role of organised socialists. Adam earlier said, we did this, we did that, which I think was shorthand for solidarity members did this, solidarity members did that. So how do you resolve that tension between being organised and offering leadership and having an open and democratic campaign? How do you get the balance and the and the interaction right? Your ears need to be as big as your mouth. You have to be able to listen uh, again and again and again and there has to be something between your ears and your mouth that actually processes the, the information. It can't just be like, oh yeah, that's what you think. Well, this is what I think. You should do this. Um, there has to be a genuine connection. Like that's one of the other beautiful things about this campaign is the relationships that people built. Like doing my thesis and getting to talk to people again about their experience five years later. Um, it was like the amount of people who cried or said, "Oh, do you remember that?" and grabbed my arm and and said something like in that sort of way. Like the, the connection, the relationship was was so real. We went through something that wasn't just let me tell you what to do but was how are we going to do this together? I have a whole workbook of ideas from past struggles. Let's work on that in some way. And not, and not, sound, and not being arrogant about that, not being like actually having a certain modesty of, of you know, using your ears and listening to people about what actually the concerns are, what their situation is, what they're willing to do and working with that because leadership is only as powerful as whoever's following it. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it's absolutely crucial. I think within that as well, it's like, yeah, I guess the, the modesty thing that you're, you're talking about somewhat is understanding that like when you're going into a campaign and you're entering some, someone else's space, essentially, whether it's a workplace and you're, you know, joining a picket line or whether it's, a, you know, something like SCA where a lot of, in fact, the Soli members, that, all of the Soli members that were involved were at Sydney Uni, but none of them were at SCA. It's about having, I guess, respect for the people that are in that space and going, well, there are things that you know about how things work here that I don't know. And I'm going to listen to that. And I have ideas about how, you know, uh, the, the history of, of activism and different tactics that are going to work but I can't superimpose those on this space. I have to work it into the space and you know what that is. And that your goal can't just be big protest, can't just be a big occupation. It has to be get people active. You, your, your goal has to always be 
How are we going to get more people involved? How are we going to get more people involved in a genuine way? How are we going to build up people's leadership um, skills and their interest in the campaign in a genuine way? And I think particularly when you're starting out with a campaign or particularly like if we looked at, at SCA, the ideas at the beginning, those first couple of meetings, it was only kind of outcome based in terms of like, oh, well, how can you do the thing that's going to, you know, save us? Yeah, how can we talk, get someone into the meeting in management with management? How can we do be specific actions rather than how can we get everyone involved in participating? Because that's where the strength of it all is. The more people you have working on it, the better it's actually going to be. And what about the other side of the equation? What did Solidarity as a, an organised group of socialists bring to this whole affair? I mean, I think without Solidarity as an organised group, the occupation wouldn't have happened um, in any way, shape or form the way it did. But our success wasn't in us being the most radical, us being, you know, um, more revolution, revolutionary than everyone else. It was the fact we were able to bring people with us and argue the next step correctly in the campaign. So if we'd gone into that first meeting where there was a debate over whether to even have a protest and said, all right, guys, we need to be radical. We need to occupy the, the management's office. Let's go. We would have, you know, had about five people vote with us. But we argued for the protest and argued in the context of the pro very first protest that it would be ignored and we would have to go further in future. Then after the protest, people see that for themselves. We've got mass opposition to this attack on SCA. Management's ignoring us. Well, if they're not going to listen to our reason, if their conscience isn't moved, we're going to have to force them. We're going to have to disrupt the, the running of the university, but also building up people's confidence to entertain that idea like, when there was the first student strike, we did a short disruption in the main campus admin building, which sort of acclimatized people to the fact you could uh, break the rules of the university, you could disrupt things. And with that confidence and experience, they were far more likely to, you know, support occupying an admin building and taking that, that action. So it was yeah, listening pe to people so we could judge where they were at and what the next step was rather than just um, proselytising about the, the end goal. And it contrasted sharply with another socialist group turned up at the first protest and, like, rammed into the security and made a show of how they were the most radical. And, you know, a lot of the students there were like, oh, what the hell, we just want to do a protest. But those same students who were shocked at those actions at the start of the campaign through, you know, self-activity and leadership ended up, you know, waking up in the dean's office, making a coffee in his kitchen, going through his files um, and far more radicalised than the, the performative minority actions that we saw by some left groups at the start of the campaign. And that's, that was the success of what we did. Now, talking of the dean, he resigned partway through this campaign so which was part of the successes how did the occupation end and what was the balance sheet successes and failures what did you what did you win by fighting the thing that we won is that sca still exists so nicole the arts exists at the university of sydney um it was given 20 million dollars to refurbish a building an old teacher
Teachers College, quite a large building, not nearly as big as the building it previously had, but a large building on the main campus with a little bit of historic value to it. Um, it has all of the studios that it used to have. However, it changed dramatically as a school. And so some of the people who are involved in the campaign also don't see it as, as too big of a win because the core of the painting, sort of the old school of the school, had their sort of pedagogy um, usurped slightly and, and put in a smaller set of studio spaces. But the fact of the matter was the school was going to be moved to a different university. That plan broke down within a month from campaigning. That plan was all systems go and then a month later email totally u-turning and it will stay at the university we're going to figure out how it's going to stay at the university um 60 staff cuts that, that were projected at that point by management then turned to 40 percent staff cuts um no one ended up getting a forced redundancy everyone got voluntary redundancy packages free studios were still going to be cut those studios were saved since then a new studio sand blowing has been introduced as well and $20 million was put towards the school to keep it as a serious art school. Its culture potentially, um, debatably, has, has changed and 40% um, of staff did lose their jobs. We did need to go further. We did need to have staff taking strike action alongside the student strikes. We did need to have students at the main campus more involved and, and, and building that periphery greater. But the, the fact of the matter was the school wouldn't exist otherwise. And the campaign put Sydney College of the Arts on the map and made a political crisis for the, for the management of the university that they couldn't ignore. They physically could not ignore it. And when the police finally did raid it 65 days later, um, it was finally at a time where they thought the campaign had petered out enough that they could be seen to go in and raid the occupation. Until then, they dare not touch it. We had we, we ran that, that building. Um, and the idea needed to be that we were also going to run the school and we were going to run the university. And those things can percolate very fast. Unfortunately, we need a few more bubbles. Dundee, you were a first-year student in the occupation. What was it like going back for your second year? Was, was there a sense of achievement amongst staff and students? Did you feel that management was a bit more shamefaced? The end of the campaign and the wins that Kelton were talking about did not directly coincide. The timeline was quite drawn out in terms of we, we knew that there wasn't going to be an amalgamation with UNSW. We knew, I think we possibly even got to the point where all the, the studios had been saved and we knew the staff numbers and we knew of Old Teachers College. But beyond that, it was still quite in flux and I definitely did not trust that the end result was going to be anything worth saving. I think, I mean, I think the end of a campaign is always a difficult time. And like, even when you, you know, you, you have these great wins, it can be very easy to focus on um, what you didn't win. And as a, I was not in Solly yet. And as a, a lone activist that had just like been brought through this whirlwind of a year to then kind of be spat out back into life as normal was actually very difficult and it was hard to know all right what do we do and how can I just give up on this and it felt like kind of the people around me had given up on it and I still really deeply cared about it and didn't really understand how to how to navigate the process of a campaign ending so um it was not <laughs> was not a a cheerful kind of let's finish out the next two years of my degree here um it was 
a difficult process, but I think reflecting on it now, I can see the campaign as a win and I can see, um, yeah, the positive things that came out of it and the positive things that we learned from it. I mean, we have a whole, you know, it, it, it brought through a new kind of group of activists and trained us to be able to fight for future campaigns and that's invaluable as well. Well, in terms of lessons, my, my last question is, is quite simple. Um, as we record this, it's getting close to the beginning of a new academic year. For many students, classes are bigger. They're often uh, online with all the problems uh, that that causes, lack of interaction, lack of, lack of human contact. Uh, costs are increasing for most students. Staff are more harried and overworked. They've got less time to talk to students and give advice. So looking back at 2016, what advice would you give to students and student activists today? I think one of the wins of the campaign was it showed that it's possible to fight like wherever they're attacked by university management. Like I said before, Sydney College of the Arts wasn't the most politicized section of the campus, but when it was attacked, there was the possibility for a very radical response. And that's what we saw. And that possibility is everywhere where there's job cuts, course cuts, overcrowding, um, an erosion of the quality of education, which we, we do see everywhere. And I think that's one of the things about the victories of the campaign. It changed the horizon of what's possible. I think prior to that, the kind of student occupations, mass student action strikes we saw at SCA would have been seen as something nostalgic that happened in the 70s and wasn't it great back then whereas we made it something that can happen now that has to happen now yeah i think on that that sort of that classic phrase dare to struggle dare to win really played out but now we have a we have a sort of a, a backboard to, to bounce off of because you know, these things just keep happening at universities there's there's, there's always the possibility there's, there's teachers beloved teachers who lose their jobs there are courses that get cut that people really, really like doing there's all sorts of attacks and yeah it's it's definitely possible only possible if you if you fight back SCA proves that but also I think maybe something for maybe people who are listening to this or at universities again where there's not big campaigns that regularly happen or there is something that's happening where they're based but um, there maybe is a really sort of domineering um, student bureaucracy and education officers or things like that, that that try to take control something that i think we learned from the campaign was that it wasn't up to like and that was the, the idea about democratizing it wasn't up to a couple of people from the nus um, or the, the src to make the decisions for the campaign if you had enough people involved if you cohered a student body to do something if you actually built those relationships then that was taken out of their hands and that sort of tension comes up a lot particularly at Sydney University where you know you've got these education officers or these factions who run and organize these things but really it's not so much about them it's much more about what do students want to do and what do students think what will students mobilize around can you organize something that will make students do something go, go into political activity to struggle um, and I think that's a, a lesson from SCA that you can do that even at one of the universities with the largest sets of factions and so forth on the campus, actually you can build an organized democratic campaign that's based around students, but you need to find out what students want to do to fight about. Uh, so what, what do students want to do to fight? Like, where, where is their energy going towards? Where can they be mobilized? And that starts with basic things like petitions, conversations, 
um, an organizing meeting, getting some people involved in that sort of way. But SE, I think, proves that you also, at any university, can build any campaign as long as you find those students to take that energy forward. Um, and maybe one other final lesson, and we went through this before, but the sort of role and necessity of, of revolutionary organization in these struggles. Like, the things that we didn't win at SCA could have been won if we were fighting to take over the university as a whole. Like, this, this struggle about transforming education is not, we can't just be picking off individual battles over this, like, we, it's where we have to start, over this teacher, this course, this school that is under threat. But that can't be the end game for actually what we're struggling for. It needs to go much further. And revolutionary politics gives you a way of understanding why the problems are systemic, um, which means that you're not someone who's just going to fight over a single issue, but you're someone who's going to fight the system. And that means every single issue. Um, and building the links between that means that there actually can be some sort of organized force that goes beyond just fighting to keep SCA at Callan Park and to keep the teachers there, but fighting to transform what universities are like, fighting to transform what society's like. Um, and that's the, the beauty of um, revolutionary organization. It can offer something in a specific struggle, but it also and necessitates that it offers something to a much broader struggle. That's crucial. Okay, that's a great note to end on. Thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks, David. <laughs>